Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I think I can say without fear of contradiction that it's good to be home. There is a lot to be said for my bed. (laughs) Thank you to Micah for covering this past Wednesday. I have yet to hear it, but the reports are all good. Apparently, you said nothing heretical. And so we're, we're glad to hear that. He was just plagiarizing the word. That's good. I had a very good time at the conference in Chattanooga. I was very pleased with it. All of the messages I came home with, eventually they'll be up on the conference website. I still have the messages from New York. I haven't put those on our website yet. Eventually, everything will make it to the Internet. But it'll take a little time because I just got back. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a personal story. Trust me, this is the introduction to 2 Corinthians 13. Paul is going to talk a lot in 2 Corinthians 13 about weakness and power. That's the central theme of chapter 13. Yesterday, I stood at the bedside of a dying man. He could barely breathe. He was fighting for breath. He was not responsive. But I spoke to him, and we prayed over him. And his body would occasionally jerk and flinch. And he had that death rattle when he breathed because of the fluid building in his lungs. The hospice nurse came and gave him morphine to try to take some of the pain away. And then this morning, very, very early, I got the call that he had died, which is not at all surprising given the state that he was in. But it means in the next few days I have a a funeral to do. What I saw yesterday reaffirmed to me yet again that death is an enemy and reaffirmed to me yet again that flesh is weak and reaffirmed to me yet again That this is the price of sin. These are the wages of sin. Human beings, though we like to think of them as pretty robust, when you see somebody in the state that I saw yesterday, you realize how amazingly fragile we are and how weak flesh is. Because despite his best efforts, he could not stop the impending death. That's weakness. But then when I got the call this morning that he had passed, I reassured his wife that he was a whole lot happier right now than she was or I was. Because now he has passed the weak stage and he's moved into power. And his soul left his body and he opened his eyes in glory. His wife and his son told me yesterday that a couple days ago, the very last time that he could speak, that he looked around the room and said, look at all the people. Yeah, he was passing from this life, the plane of constant dying, and went into everlasting life. And he is going to get up again. And he is going to rise from that grave we're going to put him in this week. And he is going to walk and talk in the kingdom of God. Power is overtaking him. He's done with the weak part. It's funny how sometimes real life seems to intrude on the things that we're preaching. But now Paul is going to talk about the weakness Of the flesh. You know that the last couple of weeks he has been saying that when he's weak, then Christ is strong. 
the strength and the power of Christ working through him allows him to boast in his weakness. So for the critics who were saying, well, Paul, he's not much to look at. And Paul, he doesn't speak very well. And Paul, he's weak in the flesh. Paul admitted it and went so far as to say, God put me in this condition through the beatings that I've taken, through the stonings that I've taken. He even allowed a messenger of Satan, a thorn in my flesh, sent to beat me up, sent to buffet me, unless I would become too lifted up because of the glory of the revelations that God has given me. And so now he's going to finish his letter by saying, yeah, I'm, I'm weak, I admit it. And my flesh is weak, I admit it. But it doesn't stay weak. It rises in power. It rises in glory. And his evidence is going to be because Christ died in weakness. Because Christ lowered himself all the way to the humiliation of the cross. That Christ lowered himself all the way to the point where the very Lord of glory who spoke everything into existence didn't speak a word. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he was dumb. And he lowered himself in weakness until he let men beat him bloody and pluck out his beard and scourge and whip him and mock him and make fun of him until he hung on the cross and cried out with a loud voice, gave up his spirit. That was the weakness he took on flesh and blood, the weak flesh and blood. He took on the weakness of human flesh so that he could rise in power. Can you imagine anything more powerful? I'm stuck with that word. Powerful. Anything more powerful than people that are dead, stone-cold Dead, rising again, coming up from the grave. And I'm not talking about the zombie apocalypse. I'm talking about people getting up healthy. I'm talking about people getting up strong. I'm talking about people with no more sickness, no more death. And God is going to wipe away every tear. There's no sadness. They rise in joy. Only God can accomplish that. So when I looked at Don yesterday, there was a part of me that almost wanted to say, good for you, because you're going to go see glory before I do. So go, put all your trust in Christ. He's got this. I held his hand because I believed he could hear me. And he had requested that I come. So I said to him, you don't need me. You need Jesus. That's all you need. You need the power of God. You need the true power of God who is going to lead you from this life into eternal life. That's real power. So now Paul is going to contrast his very weak flesh and the power of God and then he's going to say to the Corinthians, now if I come this third time and you haven't changed your ways, you want to know if Christ in his power speaks through me? Oh, I'm going to show you. Because his words, I'm not going to spare anyone. If I come back and find that you have not changed and yet are professing Christ, then I'm going to start calling you out. And that's real, genuine power. So I guess what I'm saying in my introduction here is, you got nothing. You got no power. The last time that I saw Don, he was a vital man, hardworking man, faithful husband, faithful father, full of vim and vigor and get up and go. And yesterday I saw him utterly, completely depleted of everything but his last 
torturous breaths. That's the weakness of human beings. It's so good to know that we have the power of God on our side. Amen. Victory. Victory. And in this process of life and death and life again, that interruption of death between this life and eternal life, that process of death is a tough and difficult and, and like I said, an enemy, the Bible says it. The last enemy is death. That's what Revelation says. Death is an enemy. But death is, for the Christian, the way that we move from this life into the next life. And I guarantee, however difficult it might be, like we just sang, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. As I keep on saying, keep your mind centered on him. Keep your thoughts centered on him because it's going to be wonderful when you leave this world and you open your eyes and see him and how great it will be to be able to say, I was just thinking about you. <laughs> you were just on my mind. And finally, I see you face to face. That's a glorious day. Or as my friends down at the conference call it, that great getting up morning. That great morning when we're all going to rise up out of our grave and go meet Jesus in the air and ever be with the Lord. The great getting up morning is still coming. And I like that phrase. Not just because it's a getting up morning, but it's a great getting up morning. So 2 Corinthians, we're going to finish 2 Corinthians today. We'll start talking about the book of James next week. But 2 Corinthians 13 says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now what Paul is doing here is that he is making direct reference to the Deuteronomical law. Deuteronomical, that's just fun to say. It's one of those words like cinnamon and aluminum that are just fun to say. The Deuteronomical law says that every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you accused somebody of something, your accusation was not sufficient. There had to be other witnesses who could confirm your accusations. For instance, Tom, look up Deuteronomy 17.6, if you would. Micah, look up Deuteronomy 19.15. And if you would, Steve, look up Matthew 18.16. And you're going to see how Jesus carried that right into the New Testament economy. And then Paul picks it up here. The idea that when he comes to Corinth, he's not just going to listen to people make wild accusations. He's not going to listen to people saying, well, you know what Dave did. That's a good old Hebrew name right there, Dave. Well, you know what Dave did. There has to be at least two or three witnesses. But if he has that positive confirmation of two or three witnesses, he's building his case that he's going to call them into account and he's not going to spare. Tom, read for us, if you would, the passage I just gave you. Deuteronomy 17.6 this is. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And Micah, Deuteronomy 19.15? A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Now, that concept gives you some idea of what God was talking about in the idea that you would not bear false witness against your neighbor. He even put that in the Ten Commandments. He even said that you would not say that you had seen something when, in fact, you had not seen it. Unless you were a real witness, you could not witness to something. When Jesus died, they brought in false witnesses. 
to the Sanhedrin to say, oh yeah, whatever those guys said, we also heard that, we also saw that. Yes, he blasphemed. Yes, he made himself out to be God. Well, Jesus himself carried that rule. Read for us, Steve, from Matthew 18, 16. Now, did you notice how dutifully the other two stood up, turned around, and read? They did not. Okay, well, they did. <laughs> Have you noticed that the people this morning, so far this morning, we had scripture read from a phone... And now he's going to read a passage from, from his tablet. And have you noticed it's taken them longer to find it than the people who used ink and paper? <laughs> but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is Jesus even talking about how you deal with brethren within the church. You go to them individually and personally. And if they don't hear you, you bring along two or three witnesses. So this is a very consistent concept all the way through the Bible, Old Testament or New, that you simply cannot arbitrarily charge somebody with something. You have to have two or three witnesses. Now, Paul brings that up to show that he's being completely in league with the Old Testament scriptures, that every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And I have previously said, when present that second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare. The NASB adds the word anyone. But Paul is saying, I'm coming this time. I've already written two letters. I've already been there twice. I have already called out the sin. Remember in the first letter, the man who was sleeping with his father's wife and that the <coughs> Corinthian church didn't even put such a one out of their assembly. In fact, they gloried in it. Paul is beginning to call out the sinfulness of the church because they are professing Christ and ought to, therefore, be different. And he's going to keep driving that point. And he's now going to say, I'm coming to you in the power of Christ. You want evidence that Christ speaks through me and not through the super apostles? You want evidence that I'm the real, genuine apostle? Well, you probably expect me to come and do some miracles, maybe some healings, maybe some tongues, the things that God has done through you in the past, the evidence that God has already gifted you in the past. But that's not how I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you calling out your sinfulness with power in order to demonstrate that it is Christ by his power speaking through me. Because apparently the super apostles didn't do that. Apparently, the super apostles were more concerned with follow me, give me money, make me something, compare me by myself. Aren't I really grand? And Paul is saying, now I'm going to evidence to you that I'm the real apostle. And you've got to repent. You've got to change. or I'm going to call you out in the power of Christ and spare nobody. So again, starting at verse 2, I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance, to those who have sinned in the past, and do all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. They have all the evidence they need. They have the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember all the discussion that Paul had to put in front of them about the abuse of the charismata, the tongues, the healings, the word of knowledge. He had to put everything back in order because there was such a great outpouring of the Spirit of God in the Corinthian church. So they knew that the power of God was in them. They knew that the power of God was in their assembly. They knew about the healings. They knew about the miracles. They knew that God is really powerful. But now Paul is showing them the flip side of that power. 
which is if God is powerful in you, then he is also going to discipline you if you continue in your rebellious, sinful ways. And so he says, speaking of Christ, who he mentioned in verse 3, starting in verse 4, he says, for indeed, he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. He was crucified because he took on weak human flesh. And weak human flesh dies. And so he died like all human beings do. I keep using the phrase over and over again that the ratio of death is a perfect one for one. Everybody gets one. Unless you just happen to be in the generation where Christ comes back, which for me is still plan A. As long as I'm drawing breath, I'm still planning to be among the group that's here when Jesus comes back. But if it turns out that's not the case, then I'm looking forward to that great getting up morning. I'm looking forward to absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'm looking forward to laying down this weak flesh and moving into the genuine power of God who is going to bring me into his kingdom and then ultimately resurrect and remake me as perfect as his son is perfect in the flesh. The way that we're predestined, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And the image of his son is a man sitting at the right hand of God. And one day we are going to be men standing in the kingdom, in the presence, in the glory of God. And so Paul uses that as his example. In other words, you can't get away with saying, well, yes, I I sin. Well, yes, I rebel, but hey, I'm weak. And that would be true if you were left to yourself. If God was just saying, hey, do better. Hey, you, shape up. But he is arguing, you have the evidence of the power of God in you. And therefore, it is the power of God working in and through you that gives you not only the inspiration to do better, but the power to do better. Because Christ himself was crucified because of his weakness, that weakness in the flesh. And yet he lives, I can't go past this, Look at the two words he chose. Crucified. I think we've kind of gotten so used to the idea that Jesus was crucified that we forget sometimes that Roman crucifixion was massively torturous and deadly. Jesus didn't just die. He didn't just take his last breath. He was horribly and viciously tortured to death. He was not just passing from this world. He was passing from a world that hated him and tortured him to demonstrate their hatred. And yet crucifixion stands in direct contrast in the same sentence to the word lives. He was crucified. He was tortured. He was killed. He left this planet. He's dead as dead can be. And yet he lives. How is that accomplished? The power of God. How is it going to be that any of you, I'm not going to call any names at this moment, but the fact that we're all, all of us, everybody in this room eventually going to die is not the end of the story. That's the beginning of our story. This life is like training ground for eternity. God is training you how to have faith in him, how to be completely dependent on him, how to trust his grace and mercy. And having taught you all that, he's then going to bring you into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of light, into eternal joy after he has trained us up in the things we need to know. Our life, our eternal life begins at the point of leaving this world. 
And so Paul can contrast, he died, he was crucified, but he's alive. And isn't that exactly the Christian hope? Isn't that the very essence of everything we believe? Remove that from Christianity, you got nothing. Remove that from Christianity, you've got a game by Joel Osteen. Really? Still nothing? Okay, fine. (laughs) Remove that from Christianity. You don't have Christianity. But if he died, if he was crucified and he rose again, that becomes the sure guarantee that you're going to rise again because it's the power of an unchanging God that accomplishes it. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, and yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also, now Paul is talking about himself, for we also are weak in Christ. Because of Christ, because of the testimony of Christ, because of the revelation of Christ, because I've been given the assignment, the dispensation of the gospel of Christ, because I've been given this ministry of preaching the freedom that is found only in Christ. For that reason, I've been beaten and I've been stoned and I have a thorn in the flesh and I am weak because of Christ. But that's not the end of it. The same way that he died and got up again For we are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because the power of God that is directed toward you. That's the very essence of everything that Paul teaches. I love Pauline theology. I love Pauline doctrine. I love the heavy and difficult things that even Peter admits are difficult for some people to understand. That Paul's writing can be tough sometimes. But you boil it all down, it comes down to that. Christ was crucified and he lived. And you are weak in your flesh and you're going to die in your flesh and you're going to live. The same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is going to raise you from the dead. When I was in New York, and you'll get to hear it in the probably the week to come. I'll put all that stuff up there. But anybody who's been around us enough, anybody who's listened to our systematic theology series knows that I I concentrated for a couple of weeks on proving the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the very essence of everything we believe. If Jesus didn't come back out of the grave, then you have no hope. You're still in your sin, and God is going to judge you. But if Christ got up from the grave, then you're getting up from your grave. If Christ died and didn't stay dead, then you're going to die and not stay dead. Everything that we have confidence in, that we have hope in for our eternity, is all wrapped up in the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ. And the fact that Paul would base his entire Christian theology on the resurrection shows you how very, very central the resurrection is to Pauline thinking. So take all that theology, take all that foreordination, predestination stuff, take all that stuff that we can't begin to comprehend, take all that stuff that going to the third heaven, hearing things that a man is not allowed to speak. Take all those mysteries and all those revelations, and when you boil it down, it just comes down to this. Christ died, didn't stay dead. You're going to die, not going to stay dead. That's the entire Christian message wrapped up in a single sentence. For indeed, Christ was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in Christ, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. So now Paul has laid all that out. Here's the doctrine. Here's the theology. Here's the reality. Here's the centrality. Here it all is. And the very next thing he says to the Corinthians, 
which I think ought to be said to every single Christian on planet Earth, everybody who names the name of Christ, I think this next directive applies to you. Because the next thing he says after laying all of that out is, now test yourself. He doesn't mean test yourself to see if you're good, because you're not. And he's not saying test yourself to see if you're morally acceptable by God because it's God's grace that accepts you despite your enemy's status and your sinfulness and your depravity. What he is saying is test yourself to see if you're in the faith because the Corinthians were chasing all kinds of other teaching by all kinds of other super apostles who had come in and taught all kinds of stuff. And Paul brought it back to, no, this is Christianity. Now test yourself whether you're in the faith. And the reason I said, and keep insisting, that we all need to do that is because all of us are so easily entertained by the winds of doctrine that come down the down the highway to us. I don't know, winds, highway. I don't know what my euphemism was there. By the winds of doctrine that come down to us, there are so many tangential voices in Christianity. There are so many people making stuff up. There are so many people saying with, with supposed great authority what Christianity is all about. And they don't know because they're not sticking to the word. Test yourself. Think about what it is you believe and think about why it is you believe it. Is this something that grandma taught you one day that's still hanging around in your head? Tom and I, when we were out in California, we were under a very influential pastor out there, but he was also a very Arminian pastor. And he said a lot of things that stuck with me for a lot of years. I go back and listen to some of the early recordings that are still on our website, and I, I hear myself say things that I know came directly from him. And I sometimes stop and think, am I sure about that? <laughs> am I sure? Is that, is that strictly biblical? Or was that just something really intelligent sounding? Was that really what the Bible's getting at? Or was that the opinion of a smart guy? Test yourself. Check yourself all the time. Take a personal inventory of what you believe and why you believe it. Because it's just so easy for us to grab some tradition of men and make it on par with the Bible. And then we walk around thinking, this has some validity. Here, I'll give you an example. This week... I was going to talk about this at the men's meeting on Tuesday night. By the way, men's meeting, Tuesday night, right? Here, here. Here, it's here, here. On uh, Tuesday night, men's meeting. During a discussion in uh, Chattanooga this week, it was said by a fellow who spoke with good authority, spoke intelligently about it, he was speaking about the necessity of the congregation evangelizing, which I agree with. But the point that he tried to make was he said, shepherds don't produce sheep. Sheep produce sheep. Now that sounded good, didn't it? Because many of you nodded at me as I said it. But when it comes to Christianity, the Lamb of God sires the sheep, right. not other sheep. Try as you might, you can't make other sheep. Even if you are a sheep, you can teach people who the Lamb of God has sired. You can teach them the doctrines of the Bible, and you can bring them along in the Christian faith, but you can't make sheep. But when he said it, gee, it sounded good. Sheep make sheep. So get out there, sheep, and make more sheep. That just made sense to me. Well, yes, when it comes to animal husbandry, yes, sheep make sheep. But in Christianity, 
You sheep are sheep because the Lamb of God made you his sheep. He's also the great shepherd of the sheep. He gets all the credit. He did all of it. He started your faith. He sustains your faith. And he's going to complete your faith. So that is just an example of how easily we absorb things that sound good but are not technically biblical. We have to take everything back to what does the word say? What does the Bible say? What has Jesus come to the planet to actually teach us? You need to test yourself. You need to take an inventory of what you're walking around believing. Because then you're going to talk to some other person. And if you are not biblical in what you say, you're just going to spread another tradition to them. And if you're convincing and if you're intelligent, they're going to walk away thinking, yeah, that's right. And it's not. It's not right. It's not biblical. Flesh can only beget flesh. Flesh only can only beget flesh. Only the spirit can beget spirit. I agree with you entirely. So take it back to what does the Bible say? Okay, so Paul now says everything I just said. It's just that he says it in one sentence. I just wanted you to get what his point of view is here. Because there are people who, following their tradition, will say, well, you know, Paul says, test yourself. And what they mean by that is, you should go test to see whether you're good enough, whether you're holy enough, whether your behavior is righteous enough. That's not what Paul is getting at. He's getting at test yourself to see if you're in the right doctrine instead of all of this teaching and tangential teaching that has come to you through the super apostles who have come into Corinth. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. So what he's saying is, take a look at what it is you believe. Is what you believe and what you're promoting coming to you right from Christ, who he's already said is in your midst. You have all the evidence. You have all the power. You have the gifts. You have the charismata. You have the evidence that Christ is among you. But now that you have the evidence that Christ is among you, what do you believe about him? What do you think about him? And how many of your traditions, which Jesus said make void the word of God, how many of your traditions have you put above the word of God? Keep your finger right there for just a moment. Let's turn to 2 Peter 1.10. Right at the beginning of 2 Peter, Peter is going to say something quite similar. Oh, we can't start at 10. Okay, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice his language. Notice I'm writing to people who have received the same faith as ours. He doesn't say to people who revved up their own faith, who looked at God's batting average and says, he's pretty good, I should put my faith in him. He said, you received the faith that you have. And where did you receive it? From or by the righteousness of God and from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because that's the group he's writing to, he can say, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So where does Zoe, where does life here and life eternal and where does everlasting righteousness come from? It comes because it's granted to us by the power of Jesus. That's the same theology that Paul is advancing, that there's nothing within us that's intrinsically good or right or holy or just, but it's the power of God that sustains us despite our weakness. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Notice what happens when you get grace and peace from God. Well, then you get the true knowledge that he speaks of here, the wisdom of who God is, what God is about, what Christ came, what Christ did, and that you know this and you have this knowledge because of him who called us by his own glory and his own excellence. So you don't even get credit for what you know. If you know anything about God, it's because his glory, his excellence was gifted to you. And the faith to believe it was gifted to you. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, Applying all diligence in your faith, add or supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, add knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, add sacrificial love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and his choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I grew up on the King James Version of verse 10 which was make your calling and election sure. Now, what Peter is saying is, if you're going to profess Jesus, if you're going to say that you belong to Jesus, if you're professing that he has saved you and redeemed you by his power, then it ought to be reflected in the way that you live, that there ought to be qualities of your life that he lists. Faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love for each other. All of that ought to flow out of the fact that the power of God is in you and your profession is that you belong to him and he belongs to you. And in that way, he says, you know, the doctrine of, of divine election, I love that doctrine. I preach that doctrine everywhere that they'll let me, even places that don't want to hear it. I will drive that idea that God is the one who gets all the glory because he elects. So I love that doctrine. But Peter says, if you believe you're elected by God, called, chosen by God, if your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world, then make that calling and election sure and certain by the way you behave. Because only people who have been called and inhabited, elected by God are going to act this way because he just contrasted it to the way the whole rest of the world acts in their lusts. You'll notice the contrast between the lust of the world and the sacrificial loving brotherhood of Christians. It's a dramatic difference. And so in that way, you can test yourself, just like Paul is saying. You can test yourself to see whether you're actually in the faith. Not only because you believe what the faith actually says, not only because you believe what the word says about the faith, but because your life has been changed. 
because the way that you walk, the way that you talk, the way that you think, the way that you behave is constantly in recognition of the God that saved you. Here, I'll put it another way. Let's say I'm hanging out with Marilyn one day. And in fact, recently I was. We, we were downstairs talking while Conrad was upstairs. So I'm hanging out with Marilyn. And uh, there are things that I will not say or do in front of Marilyn because I respect Marilyn. And Marilyn, I think we would all agree, as a group, she's just a really nice person. Amen. See, they all agreed, except for one, and I'm going to let you figure out who the one was. Okay? So there are certain things I'm going to do out of respect for Marilyn. There, there's ways that I'm going to behave, ways that I'm going to speak because of my respect for Marilyn. You get that? Okay, so now we're talking about God. Now we're talking about the God who saved you, the God who redeemed you, the God who ever loved you, the God who has forgiven you. How are you going to behave? How are you going to act? Because you're constantly in his presence. You're constantly surrounded by the reality of God. Now, if you're going to clean up your behavior because of Marilyn, how much should you clean up your behavior because of God? And so Paul and Peter agree. There is a way that you can make the reality of your calling and election certain and sure. So Paul says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail that test? If you start checking what you believe and you find out that everything you're really committed to is stuff that people said that you can't find in the Bible anywhere, well, then you're failing that test. So he says, verse 6, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves, speaking of himself, we do not fail the test. What we're saying to you is directly from Christ. What we're bringing to you isn't run through the filter of some man's ego. What I'm saying to you is not self-promoting. What I'm bringing to you is the very doctrine and teaching of Christ. Verse 7. And now we pray to God that you do no wrong. That's actually the word kakos in the Greek. It's not just, I pray that you don't do wrong. It's that you don't do evil that you don't do pernicious things, which is actually more forceful than do no wrong. Because just this morning, I did several wrong things. I tried to unscrew a jar that still had a seal on it. And I became frustrated with it. And then I realized, oh, take the seal off. And then it opened fine. OK, that was wrong. That was wrong of me. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not just saying, don't do wrong. He's saying, don't do evil. Don't do wicked things. Now we pray to God that you do know kakos. That we ourselves may appear approved. In other words, what he's getting at is it's not that I want you to act right so that I'm approved of. So that I look good among the super apostles. So that I get lifted up. That's not my reason for hoping that you don't do any evil. We pray to God that you do no evil, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we should appear unapproved. In other words, I don't care what these people are saying about me. I don't care. I only need God's approval. And if those people who are criticizing me and making fun of me and putting me down, if they don't approve of me, I don't care. Even if I appear unapproved, you do right. There's a phrase that I used to use back when GCA began. I used to say, if you hear tomorrow that Jim has utterly apostatized, if you hear that I've just gone crazy, it's all wine, women, and song for me for the rest of my life. Even if you hear that, 
You be the Christian. I used to use that phrase constantly. You be the Christian. Don't look sideways. Don't look horizontally. Don't look at what others are doing and then base your Christianity on them. Base your Christianity on what you know of Christ vertically. Who is he to you? Well, then behave appropriately. So Paul could say, I want you to do right regardless of how that reflects on me. I pray to God that you just live rightly. Why? Because verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. He is constrained by God. He can only do what is true. He can only tell them what is true. For we rejoice, verse 9, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. And this also we pray for, that you may be made complete. Some of your translations will say perfect. He just means that you're finally going to understand the doctrine of Christ. You're going to come to the complete man. You're going to reach the point where you understand Christ appropriately and rightly and scripturally and according to the apostolic doctrine and that you're not going to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So for this reason, I am writing these things while I'm absent in order that when I'm present, I may not use severity. He's perfectly willing. He just said, I'm not going to spare anybody. But I don't want to. I don't want to be like that. There's no dad that wants to come home after a day of work and spank the children. Dads aren't like, well, dads that love their kids at least. Dads want to come home and hear their wife say, your children were wonderful today. Paul doesn't want to come to Corinth and be severe. He wants to come to Corinth and say, you're blessed. God is good to you. You're acting accordingly. You've tested yourself. You've stopped your sin. You've put away your old life of lust. But he's willing to do it if it's called for. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, in order that when present, I may not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me. And here's what he wants to do. For the building up of you, and not the tearing down of you. I want to use the authority that Christ gave me for your benefit, to build you up. I don't want to have to tear you down, which is Paul's way of warning them. I'm on my way. I'm going to be there. Don't make dad mad. Finally, brethren, rejoice at the end of such a severe letter. At the end of such a correction, at the end of all these threats of the power of God and I'm not going to spare anybody, he comes around to and finally, rejoice. How can you do that? Only if you know the power of God. Only if you understand the authority of Christ who saved you. Only if you understand the eternal destiny that's planned for you. Then, regardless of the circumstances of your life, regardless of what you have to go through, you can rejoice. I mentioned yesterday that in the midst of the very difficult situation, that the grace of God was very present. And in fact, the wife said to me, I don't know where I'm getting the power to do everything I'm doing right now for my husband. I don't know where I'm getting the ability to do this. She said, this, this isn't me. She said, this has to be the grace of God. Well, if you know that, if you know that the grace of God will never forsake you, if you know that the God who saved you is never going to leave you alone, then you can rejoice in the midst of everything. If it's going good, rejoice. If it's going tough, rejoice. If you've been instructed in the word by an apostle of Christ sent directly to you so that you can know the things of God, rejoice. Because he could have just as easily left you in the dark. And he didn't. He revealed himself to you. Rejoice. 
Christianity in the end, Christianity rightly understood, Christianity biblically understood, is a cause of great joy because it's a cause of great comfort. And even in the midst of all your trials and your pains, there's joy because you know this too is going to pass. But the power of God remains. So finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. It's the same word he just used. That I pray that you're going to be made complete, that you're going to understand the doctrine of Christ, that you're going to have your faith wholly and completely in him. And then finally, be comforted. Be comforted in the fact that Christ is on your side and that God is not your judge and that when you leave this planet, you're going to be fine. Cause for rejoicing, cause for comfort, and then be like-minded and live in peace. In other words, have communion with one another. Be at peace with one another. Don't be fighting. Don't be backbiting. Don't be tail-bearing. Don't be gossiping. Don't be doing the things that tear the church down. Do the things that build the church up. And be like-minded. Have a common faith. Everybody believe the same doctrine of Christ, and then you're going to have unity. I know I'm going long now. I'm going to quit in just a minute so that you can go eat, especially that guy. And so I, I know, not you, just him. So... I understand. I understand that I'm going long. But something that gets said over and over and over again, it was said this morning to me. This morning, Jennifer said, I love to look on Facebook and read the Christian debates that GCA people get in. She said, because GCA people just quote scripture. Their debates are based on scripture. And they're doctrinal down the line. They know what they're saying and why they're saying it. I've told you before, last time David Morris was here, he travels church to church to church all over the country. And he comments every time to me, your body is just so unified because they all believe the same thing. That's where unity comes from, the like-mindedness. We all have a like, precious faith in Christ. We're all trusting Christ completely and entirely. And we're not mixing and diluting the gospel of Christ with man-made tradition or doctrine. We're just saying this is what the Bible says. And as a result, it's produced a body of Christians. And that's really wonderful. That's really great. People ask me, and I got asked a lot the last couple weeks, how's your church? That's a very preacher question. (laughs) Preachers like to ask that question. How's your church? I say, first off, it's not mine. Secondly, it's great. It's fine. It's good. It's healthy. I love saying that GCA is healthy. We got a gift this week in PayPal. And in the comment section, it said, hashtag healthy church. I like this hashtag. I think we should keep this hashtag going. When you're on Twitter or Facebook, hashtag healthy church. People want a healthy church. People are striving to find a healthy church. People are trying to find some place where the body is in unity, where they all believe the same thing, where they care about each other, where they take care of each other. And, and we're, we're getting there. And it's a precious thing. Don't mess with it. Don't hurt it. Don't don't devise your own schemes that end up separating the body. What were you saying? We also got a little card in the mail from Miles, and his card basically said, your church is doing a wonderful thing. Thank you. Keep going. Just just a brief thank you. Just somebody who blew through here for a night and picked up that we're a healthy church. So I, I told many preachers this week, I wish that I could bottle up whatever it is we have right now. I wish I could bottle it up and save it for a time when we're going to need it. Because I know the ebb and flow of churches. I've lived in churches long enough, and I've been at GCA long enough to know that that there's going to be a struggle right around the corner. There always are. But if we approach those struggles as a group, we're going to get through it. We always do. 
and we're stronger for it as a body. So Paul would say, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. After all that severity, after all those warnings, after all those threats, he refers to God as the God of love and peace. And that'll give you comfort. That'll cause you to rejoice. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I won't say a whole lot about that. There are a few folks here I would rather not kiss me. But no, I'm kidding. Because I'll tell you, at the conference this week, they believe that verse, which is also said at the end of Romans. Romans 16, I believe. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I got a lot of holy kisses this week. The first time that ever happened to me while I was up at Main Street, that a man walked up to me, grabbed my shoulders, and planted a big wet kiss on my cheek, I was a tad taken aback. But I can remember Elder Ward saying, you know, it's a horrible thing that at this moment in our society, we've all been so infiltrated by the homosexual movement and the homosexual thought and everything else that men kissing men is no longer an acceptable thing. Men expressing love for other men is no longer a socially acceptable thing. Men hugging men is no longer a a socially acceptable thing. But I'll tell you, this week, I got a lot of hugs from a lot of men, and I got a lot of kisses on my cheek till my cheek was practically chapped. And I enjoyed every one of them because I knew the heart of the men who were kissing me. They were just following what Scripture said. Someday, I'm going to shock somebody, and I'm going to give somebody a holy kiss, and you're going to go, Pastor Jim freaked out and kissed me. I'm going to say, I'm just being biblical. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the koinonia. You've heard that word enough times. It's translated fellowship in the NASB. It's the koinonia, the joint participation, working together the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I can't close on a better note than that. Questions? Yes, sir. You've talked about this before, but I need a repetition. Okay. So those of us who are Jesus' sheep, we die. We go straight to the kingdom and sit at the right hand of God. What happens a thousand years later when our bodies are resurrected? What I can tell you is only as much as the Bible says. I don't want to speculate. But the language appears to be that you're going to die and be present with the Lord. That's what Paul keeps saying, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But then when he comes back to get his church and the instantaneous change happens on the planet, it says that he comes back with his saints. We come back with him. And that the ones who are already dead don't proceed. The ones that are alive, we all go together. And so, yes, that seems to be where the resurrection is. And at that point, our disembodied spirits join our bodies again so that we are finally fully in the likeness of Christ, because he is not just a disembodied spirit. He is a resurrected man. And so we, to be in the image of Christ, have to be resurrected men. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Okay, good. Anything else? Well, you know, uh, Jesus, where was it Jesus said, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die? There are so many verses like that. Um, I was thinking this morning about Jesus going to the grave of Lazarus. And Martha saying, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus says, you're going to see your brother again. And she says, I know I'm going to see him in the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. So there's plenty of those kind of verses. Believe in me, you'll never die. 
And, and then Revelation 20 talking about the second death. So there, there's so much to this life and death thing that there is either implanted permanent life despite the interruption of physically dying or there's eternal condemnation that's the second death despite having died the first time. So there's a lot there. Anything else? Well, all right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.